So Wes, it's that time again where we get to go on another security adventure. Oh boy, I'm excited. So I had so much fun talking to Lou last time that I've asked him to come on this adventure with us. Lou, thanks for saying yes. Of course, glad to be here. This adventure is going to take us a little bit to maybe the dark side. You see, while I was at Texas Cyber Summit, I went to a talk called How to Focus Fire on the Bad Guys Coming for Your Network. And I thought this was fascinating because it was one of the first talks that I've been to that talked about real-world application to the things that I was learning. So I asked our new friend Kyle to come and join us and talk to us a little bit about the work that he's up to, and what inspired this talk. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I was really looking forward to this. So Kyle, would you mind telling us a little bit about you, but also what inspired you to write this talk? Of course. Uh, I'm a blue team network analyst, and I really got interested in cyber threat intelligence when I started doing more of a planning role. Uh, And what really made me want to give this talk was because it seemed like as a community, we kept throwing around threat intelligence as this buzzword, but nobody really knew what what that meant or how we could practically use it. So what I wanted to see was how we could hunt more efficiently, especially if we were looking for multiple bad guys that we knew could be using the same same tactics. Now, talking about throwing terms around, I did hear you say that you are a blue teamer, but what does that mean? That's a good point. A blue team is your proactive defenders or hunters for a network. So I'll use blue team defenders and hunters kind of interchangeably. Uh, Those are your quote unquote good guys, if you will. Well, when I go to security conferences, I hear two other terms thrown around and that's red teamers, which I'm guessing would be the adversaries. Yes. uh, Red teams are usually good guys that are pretending to be bad guys. Uh, they are used to test how the blue teams and the defenders uh, would react to actual adversary tactics. So my next question is, what is purple team? Because I've heard that one as well. So there's two schools of thought here. Uh, In a perfect world, a purple team is just a bridge between the red and the blue teams. Basically, it's used to enhance information sharing so that the red team knows what the blue team's up to and vice versa. Uh, that was really uh, put out there by Daniel Measler. Uh, it's not really technically a team, it's just sharing information. However, in practice, most organizations would have a purple team, which basically has members trained in attack and defense. So let's get to the meat of the subject. You know, we talk about threat intelligence. I guess it's easy to say it's about gathering information on threats. But what does that actually look like when companies are doing it? So the way we have defined threat intelligence is the application of threat information in order to better inform defenders of specific actors or exploits or malware that could target a given network. So what we're looking at is we're looking at not just taking raw information, but we want to turn that information into intelligence when you're informing defenders about a specific threat. Can you give me an example of what that intelligence might look like, like a real-world example of something that maybe you've faced? Yeah. So generally speaking, whenever we're talking about intelligence, uh, we're looking at tactics, techniques, and procedures, so TTPs that adversaries have used in the past. Uh, That could also include their malware sets, their tools, as well as forensic artifacts that are left behind after they have exploited a network. 
all of that we can tie back to a specific threat actor, which is really what, what we're ultimately trying to get to. So once they've gathered that information, you talked about how you can kind of attach that back to a certain threat actor. But how are companies actually you know, going through this information and using it effectively to be able to perhaps defend themselves better or perhaps go after that threat actor? So there's two ways. Well, there's a couple different ways, but there's two main ways you can gather this information. Uh, a lot of companies will do the classic, the you throw the money at the problem until it goes away, right? <laughs> right. So what, yeah, so what they'll do is they'll try to buy this or that uh, cyber threat intelligence solution, but they don't always know how to properly use them, and they're not really sure how it's supposed to work or even what it's supposed to provide for them. So they just kind of buy this solution and, and hope for the best. Other companies will try to do it on their own, so there are some public repositories out there uh, awesome Threat Intelligence on GitHub is a list of a lot of different threat intelligence resources. And you could even pay for proprietary threat intelligence information, and they might even know how to use it. But they'll, they'll try to go out and do some of that legwork on their own. Uh, there's a couple different vendors out there. I believe it was a Forrester New Wave market research report that came out in the third quarter of 2018. Uh, they basically looked at 15 different vendors that were doing this quote-unquote threat intelligence uh, solution. Uh, and I think they were looking at some of the top runners were like FireEye with their cyber threat intelligence services. You had CrowdStrike uh, with Falcon X uh, threat intelligence. Recorded Future was in there with Recorded Future threat intelligence. So they went through a bunch of different products and kind of highlighted the pros and cons of each of them. Uh, so those are some of the commercial solutions out there if, you, if a company wanted to just pay for something as opposed to doing it on their own. But when you're talking about the actual use of the information, a lot of the companies, as far as I know, are using this more as a way of looking for static indicators. So when I say static indicators, I'm talking uh, malware hashes, uh, known bad IP address, known bad domains, things that really don't change or things that are very easily changed by the adversary. So like whenever they have an IP address that maybe they exfil data to, once they use that IP address, they may not use that ever again. So if you're looking for this IP as a blue team, I mean, it's going to be hard to, to find that if they basically used it once and then threw it away. Right. So it works for some of the low-hanging fruit, maybe, but anyone with resources or a little more sophisticated, you're just not going to find them. Exactly. So that's why when a lot of these threat intelligence, quote-unquote, solutions are used, a lot of times they're just giving you raw information, and that's not really what you should be looking for or really what you should be using as a blue team. Uh, what you should be using is you should be taking this information to try to inform your hunters to specific threats. Again, taking information and transforming it into intelligence. This also includes looking at uh, how bad guys have exploited similar networks in the past. Again, not really. You want to know the the higher level how the the tactics, techniques, procedures. You don't really want to be drilled in on a specific malware hash or a specific IP or something like that. Now, Lou, you're kind of doing this a little bit in your day-to-day, -day, and a little bit's probably a gross understatement. How much of the information that you see gathered do you think is actively being used and not just stored away somewhere? Well, so that's a great question. Uh, we, you know, every organization does things a little bit differently. Uh, you know, there's a lot of companies that out there that are taking threat intelligence, uh, IOCs or indicators of compromise. 
And as long as they're from a high fidelity source, feeding them right into their endpoint protection platforms or their, their endpoint agents and, and creating alerts, you know, as, as soon as they appear. And then, you know, there, there are definitely companies out there that are accumulating all of this threat intelligence and they can't figure out how to operationalize that. It, you know, it depends a lot on, on how much the companies are investing and putting an emphasis on their security teams. So Kyle, during your talk, you talked about MITRE and the MITRE attack framework. And when I went to look at it, it looked a little bit like kind of like a Wikipedia for adversarial behavior. Is that a fair comparison? I would say that's pretty close, yes. Uh, I'm hesitant to say they're a one-stop shop uh, for publicly available information on bad guys out there, but if there was such a thing, they would be pretty close. Can you tell me a little bit more about the attack framework? And for those of you listening, that's ATT and the and symbol CK? Yes, it's the Adversarial Tactics, Techniques, and Common Knowledge Matrix. Uh, Basically, what they did was they were trying to look at every possible way that bad guys could get into a network, could execute malicious code, maintain persistence, gain credentials, exfiltrate data, all of that fun stuff, all all of the things that bad guys would want to do to take what they're goal is, so whether that be um, market research, whether that be source code, whatever it is they're after, and then also to maintain presence on that system for as long as possible. That's really interesting. But one thing that kind of gave me pause is I'm looking through all of them, and this is very much going to be a don't shoot the messenger question for either Kyle or Lou or, hey, Wes, if you want to come in on it. <laughs> but So obviously I work with Linux Academy and I work with Jupyter and we do a lot of work around Linux OS and people just tend to think that their attack vector is so small and that they don't really have to worry about these things. Is that just a false sense of security or have you guys found that to be true? I would say that tends to be a false sense of security. Uh, Just because you don't have as large of a market share as, as Microsoft doesn't mean that you shouldn't be concerned. Going by some of the TTPs on the MITRE attack matrix, a lot of them are OS agnostic. While they might initially be written for Windows, just because that's what most users are going to be using, there are sections that talk about the Linux equivalent of those tactics. And really, if we're talking about advanced actors, if they want to get on your network, they're going to find a way. You can't really just rely on a, on a small attack service to hide forever. Yeah, and I would generally agree. I mean... You know, if you're, you're putting all of your Linux servers out there on the internet and you're not restricting, you know, removing, uh, password logins and restricting root logins, it doesn't take an advanced persistent threat group to, to break into your network. Someone hammering away at your network with a thermostat in, in Illinois is going to do it. And I believe I even saw something along the lines of 70%, according to W3Techs, of the servers online right now are run by some form of Unix. So from coming from a Linux background, I'd actually say that you are more likely, especially with web servers, are going to get hit with something as opposed to Windows. Right. You got to think of what, you know, what your actual risks are. So if you're, maybe you're on the desktop, you're not running as much server software, that's a little bit better, but there's certainly people out there targeting people running Linux. Okay, so now I know that I'm vulnerable and I can be attacked. Can you give me an example of how I would use all this information to start threat hunting, to actually you know, get into my network and start looking for some of these indicators of compromise? Of course. Uh, so 
I'll use the same example I did in my talk. Uh, let's say for argument's sake, you're an admin at a research university. Uh, a university or education kind of background is, is an industry that not a lot of people consider to be something that people want to attack, uh, mostly because, oh, well, like, why would someone want to attack a college? Well, a lot of times they will have trusted partnerships or research or things that adversaries could find very, very intriguing if they could get their hands on it. Uh, so for, for argument's sake, we'll say that you're an admin for a research university. And for whatever reason, you can't afford to just buy a fancy, expensive threat intelligence solution. So you have to go out and, and do this on your own. The first thing that you'd want to do is do some research on what threat actors have targeted universities or research labs or, or the like in the past. Uh, there's a couple different resources for you to do that. Of course, you have MITRE ATT&CK. They'll talk about different groups that have targeted that industry. There's also FireEye Threats by Industry. Those are published, I believe the last one was in 2016, so they're getting a little dated, but they still could be a good place to start, point you in the right direction. And then, of course, any sort of recent news stories or any sort of other white papers that have come out recently would be good places to start. But really, at, at this stage, you're just trying to see what bad guys have hit your industry in the past, whatever that happens to be. Uh, for argument's sake, we'll say that we come up with nine threat actors. So if you if you look at the MITRE attack matrix, they have about 90 different threat actors there, uh, and nine of them have targeted uh, universities or, or national labs or research labs in the past. So that's a pretty good start. Right off the bat, uh, we went from 90 down to nine threat actors. So that's great if you have a new or inexperienced defense team, because now they're not looking for every bad guy that's ever been identified. Uh, at this point, you want to take those nine threat actors and see, okay, these are the bad guys that are interested in my network. Who actually has the capabilities to get into my network? Uh, now, as a general rule of thumb, if we're looking at nation states or or well-funded threat actors, uh, there's, they're probably going to find a way in. So at this point, you might want to just say, okay, we have nine threat actors. We're just going to make the assumption that all nine of them in over time, eventually, we'll find a way into our network. Uh, at that point, now that you know who wants to get in and who has the capabilities to get in, uh, you can look at each group's tactics, techniques, and procedures. Uh, so at this point, you want to see what do they have that overlaps with each other, what TTPs are most common, uh, do they use similar malware sets? Do any of the malware set TTPs overlap? Uh, and this is where the MITRE matrix really shines because it allows you to find these overlaps and start to prioritize them. So in my talk, I actually published a copy of the matrix that we, uh, my team made as an Excel spreadsheet. And what that really allows you to do is you can filter for the groups and the malware sets that you are looking for specifically, and then you can reorganize the TTP so you can see immediately which ones uh, bubble to the top for the most common or the most shared amongst all of your threat actors or malware sets. Uh, MITRE has also published something similar. It's called the MITRE Navigator. This uses JSON to overlap the TTPs to kind of make a heat map-like visual. It's really, really cool uh, if you have a way of implementing that. So the reason we went with the Excel spreadsheet is if you are in a rush or you need to get this out to someone who maybe can't just stand up a bunch of JSON files for some reason, uh, it's a little, it's not as pretty to look at but it's a little more robust and it's it's a little more uh, available to people out if we just have to send this to someone who's in the middle of looking for a bad guy. 
Right. Or I imagine it's easier to communicate that out to other teams too. You know, if exactly. you're technical, it's probably ready for a spreadsheet, but maybe not JSON. Exactly. Yeah. We wanted to try to build something that was uh, usable to the most amount of people right out of the box. So that's why, that's why we went with that route. Uh, so really at this point, you have a list of TTPs that you can prioritize. Uh, and at this point, you can see, hey, maybe we don't have a method of, like, let's say Power, PowerShell is a pretty common one. So let's say you, your organization doesn't have PowerShell logging turned on. Well, that's something you might want to fix, uh, because if that's a common TTP across a bunch of threat actors that are known to target the education industry, that's something you probably want to be looking for. So when you're talking about all of this, it seems to be a lot of psychology, a lot of getting into that attacker's head. And one thing that you talked about was David Bianco's pyramid of pain and how this pyramid is broken down into how much pain you will cause an adversary when you're able to deny them one of the in- those indicators that we spoke about earlier. Could you tell us a little bit more about the pyramid of pain and how it's used? Yes. So the pyramid of pain... Uh, starts at hash values and works all the way up to TTP. So there's there's six levels. Uh, it goes from hash values, which is classified as trivial to change, to IP addresses, which are easy, domain names, which are simple to change. So again, the, all these three, these bottom three levels. You're, if you're noticing a trend here, these are all things that are relatively straightforward to an adversary to change as necessary. Uh, however, the top three levels. Uh, are significantly harder. So these are your network and host-based artifacts, which are annoying, uh, tools, which are very challenging to change, and then TTPs themselves, which are at the very top of the pyramid. And that's very tough. Because if we can start forcing adversaries to change their TTPs themselves, at this point, we're talking about forcing entire teams to get retrained in new tactics, uh, probably new tool sets being coded for them. And that, that's when we're really, really forcing the enemy to take a step back and essentially reevaluate how they're going to do business in the future. Hello, I am completely going to put you on the spot here. Sure so- thing. A lot of this sounds like best practices, you know, in a, in a perfect world, we're thinking about all these things. On the floor, when, you know, things are actually occurring, how much of this comes to your mind? How much of this is your team actually thinking through? Or is it just, let's stop the fire as soon as we can? That's a great question. There's a very careful balancing act between immediately evicting a threat actor as soon as you detect them and waiting a little, learning from them. If you have good logs and a good, you know, endpoint detection agent and, you know, full packet capture, you can learn a lot more about an attacker by not immediately evicting them. And whenever we're threat hunting, you know, we, we try to map all of our activities right to the MITRE attack framework. You know, it, it's really easy to go hunting for something when you're looking for specific behaviors. So, you know, if we're looking for examples of data exfiltration, you know, MITRE lists out a handful of techniques, and then we think, well, how would someone do this on a Windows server? Or how would someone do this on a Linux server? And then based upon that, we can craft a query to go through all of the information that we've collected over the last 30 or 60 or 90 days and look for any evidence of that sort of behavior. And, you know, that actually is probably one of the most important parts. Before you can 
even think about, you know, going to look in your network for, for a advanced threat actor, you need to be sure that you have enough logs and of high enough fidelity that you'd be able to capture any evidence. You know, if, if you're not aggregating your logs and at least running some form of network analysis, whether it's, you know, a one-to-one sampled net flow or, you know, you have full packet capture with TLS decrypt, anywhere in between there is good. But you need to have the data. If you don't have the data, you're not going to be able to find anyone. If we have someone listening right now who's going, this is fascinating. Like, I would love to break into threat hunting. This is what I want to do with, you know, my future. But they're not currently working in a security industry where they could have access to this type of information. How would you guys recommend that they go about getting started, you know, getting started with their training? And for me, I would say the first thing you'd want to do is start reading up on the threat intelligence resources out there. So again, all of the resources I've mentioned, the, the MITRE matrix is a great place to start, uh, just reading through the different groups and the malware sets and, and how they've been implemented in the past. And also the nice thing with MITRE is they link all their sources to the white papers that have been published. So you can go directly from a threat group or a malware set, and you can see all of the white papers that have been published where they're pulling that information from. And then from there, you can kind of spider out wherever wherever your interests take you. But knowing the resources available is a large part of the battle, because if you don't know what to pull from, and if you don't know where this information is to inform you of threats, then it's going to be significantly harder to do your job in threat hunting. Yeah, and you know, to add on to that, there's there's a lot of great books out there. Uh, one of my favorites is Intelligence Driven Incident Response: Outwitting the Adversary, uh, which was put out by Scott Roberts and Rebecca Brown. It really dives in deep, uh, but it starts out in a great place where you know if if you think this is interesting and you don't know a whole lot yet it's a great place to start and you know you just go along and if if they see something that you just don't know yet you go look it up and then you come back in a couple of minutes uh it's it's a great book on the other side of the coin what about organizations what if somebody is listening to this going our company isn't doing this correctly. Like we're not training our people to be effective threat hunters. What advice would you give them to be able to better prepare their teams? So Squirrel actually came out with a great write-up that goes along with this. Uh, I believe they're now actually owned by Amazon Web Services. But there's two major areas where organizations can focus on getting better with threat hunting. And that's the amount and type of data collection and then how they analyze that data. So basically what Squirrel goes through is saying, okay, you have so much data, whether that be just logs or packet capture, kind of what Lou was saying earlier, uh, and how much of it they have. But you can't just collect all the data. It's not just collect all the things and hope for the best. It's also how you analyze it. So not only do you have to collect a lot of data, but as you are collecting this data, you need to understand and design processes to analyze it and give that to your threat hunting team 
to try to figure out where these indicators of compromise are and where these bad guys are. So a major part is is not just the data, but also the procedures that your organization uses to analyze it. So if you're an organization and you want to get good at this, I would say that you really need to not only gather a lot of data, but know what to do with it. Before I really got into threat hunting, I kind of figured cybersecurity was mostly like, uh, you know, waiting around for someone to attack the network and then going and trying to stop them. And threat hunting is really a, a continuous operation, ideally. Um, the most mature organizations don't stop the threat hunting cycle in order to kick off instant response procedures. They're separate groups and threat hunting continues. And being able to feed the detection tools your incident response team has with information that your threat intelligence group is gathering, and then being able to feed in things that your threat hunting team might find and, and continuously improve is like the, the ideal. Like that's the, the most mature model. Uh, but not a lot of people are there and that's okay. It's, it's the idea that we're going to move towards a better solution, but you know, there's a lot of hard work along the way and it, takes a lot of different types of people. It's not uncommon for blue team organizations to have a, a data scientist or two on staff, because especially as the organization gets larger, you're dealing with exponentially more data. So there's a lot of moving pieces that all have to kind of line up for, for things to move forward quickly. And usually they don't move quickly, but it's that daily getting a little bit better. Everyone gets a little bit better at their job, and then you move the organization forward. It's you can't become an instantly mature, you know, uh, Air Force or DoD level network defense organization overnight. Oh, guys, I think we are unfortunately as far down this rabbit hole as we can go today. But I want to say thank you so much for all of you joining me. And Kyle, if somebody has more questions or would like to get a hold of you to maybe talk about your slides, what's the best way for them to do so? The best way to reach me would be through Twitter. So I'm trying to force myself to use that a lot more. So if anyone was to send me a message or tweet at me or something like that, then I would, that'd be the way to get a hold of me so I could. Uh, get with them and, and talk through some of this some, if they had some more detailed questions. Uh, my handle is aptgetcubert. Uh, I think we, if you guys wouldn't mind putting a link in there, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm more than willing to answer any questions people might have if they want to learn more about this. And Lou, one more time, how do we get a hold of you? The best way is also on Twitter. Uh, my handle is L-J-S-T-E-L-L-A. And there should be a uh, link in the description as well. Wes, thanks for joining me on this security adventure, and I can't wait for our next one. Oh boy, I have a lot of fun research to do now that we've got all these great links. And of course, they'll be over on extras.show.